Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. The Developers Risk and Resilience Conference brought together local authorities, developers, investors and designers to learn how to upgrade cities for climate change. Alistair Mant, Head of Business Transformation from the UK Green Building Council, made a special announcement at the conference and described how policy and finance are shifting in reaction to the climate emergency. Morning, everybody. Morning, everybody. Yeah, back at school. Great. Um, thanks very much for coming along today. Thanks to Christine for inviting uh, UKGBC and myself to open this. I am going to give some of the um, some of the scary, uh, horrible stats, just because I think it's important that we just do that at the beginning of the day. I know everyone else is talking about fantastic solutions, which is great. I'm also going to talk about what the um, political response is to these twin threats of the ecological and climate crisis. Uh, and we're in an interesting time for that because I know that other um, people presenting here today can't really say anything about it because of PERDA, but I'm allowed to, so I can say where I think it's going. Uh, and also a really important component, which is the financial element. What are the financial uh, markets um, looking at in terms of these issues? And then actually launching today uh, an ambition for the built environment around climate resilience and embracing nature. And that uh, we'll have a report that's going live on our website in the next few minutes. Uh, and then finally, what I think we need to do going forward to meet these challenges. So UK Green Building Council, if you don't know, its mission is to radically improve the sustainability of the built environment. Uh, we have a vision, as you can see here. We want a built environment that enables people and planet to thrive. And um, these are all interrelated issues. These are the five areas that we focus on. And there's two components of that vision which I think are really important today. One is the climate change, so we need to both mitigate and adapt. And I'll be focusing on how we adapt to climate change. And also, we need to um, embrace and enhance uh, nature and promote biodiversity. And I think those two things sit very strongly together. And I don't think it's too... Um, I don't think it's misleading at all to say that we're in an ecological crisis at the moment, heading towards the sixth mass extinction. The fifth one was the dinosaurs. The advantage we have is that we know it's coming. It's not an asteroid. It's not suddenly going to hit us, um, you know, sideswipe us. We can see the data, and we know who's responsible for most of it, and it's us. Therefore, we have the power to change it, which is a much, much better position to be in than the dinosaurs were in. So that's something to celebrate within the dismay. Um, but we had a report this year from the Intergovernmental Science Policy Platform on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services, and they say that globally, humans are threatening one million species um, worldwide, and ecosystems have halved. And that's partly because since 1992, our urban environments have doubled. And it's not just a global, but it's also a, a UK problem as well, as you can see, hopefully, from some of the, the stats up here. And in fact, just last month, we had the latest State of Nature report saying that 15% um, of UK species are at risk of extinction and that public sector expenditure on biodiversity has fallen 
since 2008. There's also a very strong risk, um, strong link with climate change with at two degrees, 5% of species at risk just from climate change related. And if we're at 4.3, um, then it's 16% of species. So we do have a crisis here. And to move on to the climate crisis, um, well, we're currently on course for, for four degrees. Uh, and even at one degree, we're already seeing impact in terms of extreme weather events. So we can think of um, flooding. We've seen wildfires around the world, um, excessive heat, high winds as well. All of these impacting buildings and infrastructure that are on the front line of feeling these climate change effects. Um, for the UK, that will mean much hotter, drier summers. So you might want to celebrate the fact that we'll have a climate like Marseille come 2040, but then you think, oh, God, then I have to go in on the Jubilee line or the Central line. And you might think maybe that's not so great. So, you know, we think about the buildings and infrastructure we have and actually how, how able are they to cope with these extremes of weather, both flooding and also heat. And also that heat leading to predicted 7,500 deaths a year. That's a, a threefold increase um, on present day. And also, of course, we need water for our buildings. We all need to, to use water in the bathrooms and also to drink. And if we're in severe drought, that's a, that's a significant impact with financial impacts as well for those who own and operate um, properties. So based on current trajectories, the good news in an ironic way is that we won't be meeting the Paris Agreement on climate change. Um, we won't be meeting the IHE biodiversity targets and we'll be failing on the UN Sustainable Development Goals. So everyone else is going to give you the really good stuff saying how we, you know, that I'm wrong and I hope I am. But at the moment, the trajectory is wrong. We're on the wrong course and we need a change. So science says that in order to do that, to try and stick to 1.5, significant changes now known between 1.5 and 2 degrees of warming, we need a reduction in greenhouse gases by 45% within now the next 11 years. Last year, global emissions continue to rise. Next year, they have to top out and then fall by 45%. Even at one degree, we're seeing extreme weather. 1.5 will be more extreme. If we don't hit this pretty crazy looking graph, the impacts will be even more extreme. So we need to think about the scenarios that our buildings and infrastructure are able to operate in. This is the difficult slide because I'd like to say, well, I think the government has seen this and we're on this trajectory, but of course, in a month's time, I might be even more wrong than I am on some of those other, those other claims I've just made. But um, let's assume that the trajectory of this will continue. Um, we've had a 25-year environment plan, um, and that's been uh, including the aspiration that we will actually leave the environment, our natural environment in the UK, in a better place than we found it which as we've seen from the state of nature is not where we're going at the moment. And to embed environmental net gain principles for development of buildings and also infrastructure. And that's been then built on through the environment bill, which was put before parliament on October 15th, and we'll see what happens in a few months time. But that had a 10% net gain um, biodiversity uh, um, principle in there for all new developments. So actually setting out net gain biodiversity, looking for 10% on new developments, but also production of local nature recovery uh, strategies um, to coordinate those efforts between species decline. So we can't just look within our own red line boundary. We actually need to look about how those areas of biodiversity and habitat um, connect together. 
also new reporting and monitoring frameworks uh, with five, five yearly uh, reviews in terms of the metrics, the targets that will be set, uh, and also a new environmental um, protection office, which I think really importantly will include climate change within it. And I think it's vital that we see the ecological and the climate change threats um, together, not two separate and distinct challenges, but actually that we bring them together and often the solutions are one and the same. Uh, we've also had a national design guide which will be feeding into an update on the NPPF, the National Planning Policy Framework, and again puts in their front and center around green infrastructure and adaptation. So we have these crises. I think we can say that civil society has reacted. I think um, if we think about XR, we think about the climate strikes, and we had, a, we had um, about four to 500 individuals from the built environment join us, UKGBC, um, on the 20th of September to show support, and then we joined the main, uh, the main movement down outside Parliament. Um, if you just look at the papers as well, you can see that they're actually moving to recognizing that more action is required, and I think um, politicians are starting to see that backing and starting to take on board what the science is also telling them. And I think another really important component, especially for our sector, is what the finance world is doing and saying. And the RICS estimate that 70% of global wealth is in property assets. So what the finance sector do, what that money wants, expects to see, really, really will and does impact um, what we need to be delivering. So you may well have heard of the TCFD, um, one of my least favorite acronyms. So from the FBS TCFD, so fin uh, FSB TCFD, Financial Stability Board, we got the Task Force on Climate Change Related Financial Disclosures. Thank you very much. It took me about a year to learn that. And um, so that came out in 2017. Mark Carney, very heavily involved in that. Um, and it's guidance for companies on what they should be doing and reporting around the threats from climate change, both on the transitional risk. So if we have to move, which we do, to a zero carbon, um, to a zero carbon economy, then what are the risks to their business on that in terms of the mitigation piece? But also on the adaptation piece, what are their risks to their assets, to their supply chains? And essentially, it's based around governance, strategy, um, having a risk management process and also around having metrics and targets and trying to get uh, businesses to report in ways that actually people can assess across the board to have some consistency. And we're already seeing this coming down into the property sector with a number of um, asset owners and REITs putting in their corporate reports, and you can easily go and find them, that they are aligning with the TCFD recommendations. In fact, 800 organizations around the world now support these. And another, uh, a number of other institutions have picked them up and are really driving them. And that's based on things like um, you know, eight central banks last year came out, including that of England, and said that the financial risks of climate change were systemic, they were system-wide, and potentially irreversible if not addressed. And essentially what that means is that people's capital is at risk. And people in finance obviously don't like that. And they'd like action to be taken, including central banks. Um, Bank of England has been talking a lot about this, putting insurers uh, on notice that they need to improve their planning, also that um, banks need to improve their planning. On average, they look about five years ahead. That's not very consistent with what we're going to see through climate change and when the impacts will take place. 
And now the Bank of England's Prudential Regulation Authority has told boards of banks that they need to make a named individual responsible for climate change risk. So you can't just push it down onto the sort of head of sustainability and hope that it happens. This has now got to be taken into the boardroom. A named individual on that board must be responsible for climate change risk. And it's similar um, update of regulations for pension trusts, uh, uh, pension fund trustees. They're now duty bound to report on how that transition and also the physical risks will impact their funds. So as soon as board members, I find, are made responsible for things, other people have to take action as well. Things start to move. So I think we're going to see, and we are seeing, a very quick progression in this area. And in fact, just yesterday, or two days ago, um, the IIGCC, another great acronym, the Institutional Investors Group on Climate Change, um, they published a guide this week called Investor Expectations for Listed Real Estate Companies. And it's well worth, it's well worth a look at, if you're a bit geeky like me anyway, but well worth a look at. Um, and it actually builds on the TCFD recommendations, use a very similar structure around governance, strategy, risk management metrics, and actually sets out what the expectations are, both for board members and also for sustainability professionals. And includes recommendations around scenario planning. So you need to think, well, in a 1.5 degree, in a 2 degree, in a 4 degree world, what does this mean for our underlying assets? Um, and also around measuring the value at risk from extreme weather events. So how, how much of your fund is at risk from things like flooding, even from high winds, from severe drought, from overheating, people can't actually go to the office, they're probably not going to pay their rent. So actually putting a financial figure to that level of risk at those different scenarios, because we still don't know if we're going to be 1.52 or unfortunately most likely at the moment 4 degrees by the end of the century. So again, I think the trajectory is quite clear. The green finance strategy also similarly um, is trying to make sure that the capital is allocated towards things like green infrastructure, nature-based solutions, moving us towards meeting that 25-year environment strategy and also the industrial strategy. Importantly, seeing them together, both environment and industrial. The economics is not, does not sit outside of the natural world. And like climate change and ecology coming together, those two increasingly have the same focus. So we think at UKGBC that we can have, um, you know, you look at them together and nature-based solutions can be solutions for both of those two, for climate change um, adaptation and also around um, making sure that we enhance nature and biodiversity. So this is a nice um, picture showing some nature-based solutions that actually we've taken from our friends at um, Wildlife Trust that we've been working with and worked with a number of people in the built environment. Um, but things such as uh, using green roofs and green walls actually has improved both the insulation of that building from, from heat and from cold, but also uh, ensures that you slow down um, the rainwater runoff. You can actually then collect the, that rainwater and use it in the building and also improves biodiversity. Similar impacts from using rainwater gardens, from planting street trees, which provide shading, cool the air, also slow down the runoff, create habitat. So there's win-wins um, if we look in the right places. And so here's some other example of, of things that we can get from nature-based solutions. And so when we were thinking about how do we meet these twin challenges, 
we, we took the idea of putting those two together, those two areas of our vision, that we should look at them um, at the same time. So we set out to create an ambition earlier this year. Um, everything that we do is very collaborative, co-created, working with our members and other key stakeholders. So we're in discussions with Natural England, DEFRA, Wildlife Trust, et cetera, as well as architects, developers, engineers. Um, we did a lot of desktop research. We identified the key stakeholders. We ran a visioning workshop, got some pretty crazy ideas from that, got some, got some really good ones as well, but certainly opened up some new thinking. We then had the one-to-one -one discussions, interviews, and then we went to public consultation. And then we had a few more round tables as well. And so today what we're launching is the result of that. You can find it both on me, but uh, more usefully for all of you. Um, I won't pin it to myself. Most usefully for all of you, it's now online because it's gone 9.15. So you can go and download it and please um, spread the word. Uh, so it's basically got the statement, but really just goes through the detail of why we've come to that conclusion and what we want to do next. As a very quick overview on that, this is the ambition. I don't want to be in these pictures, so how do I get <laughs> So when we say um, all buildings and infrastructure, uh, that's new and existing. Policy at the moment is looking mainly at, at new, but that's on like 0.01% of stock. We don't have time to wait for all the new buildings. We need to look at existing as well. Um, throughout their lifetime, you may be resilient now. You may be enhancing biodiversity now, but what's the plan going forward? Um, if we pick on uh, uh, some of the wording, and we went through every word, <laughs> and you can see in the report why we've chosen every phrase, that we have put a, a definition there for what we mean by climate resilient. Um, environmental net gains is maybe the, um, the sort of the newer one, and I think it will be spoken about after me as well, which is great. But talking with um, some government departments and others in the industry, but biodiversity net gain wasn't enough. It's not all-encompassing. We need to include wider natural capital as well. And to avoid payoffs, to avoid just having one metric of environmental net gain, give it a number. Actually, putting the S on turned out to be quite an important move as well. Um, and that's because we want to align with where politics is going in this, with where the industry is going with this, and make it understandable. Though, of course, we want to be probably more stretching than policy because we see the extent of the challenges. And so that's why we use the word um, maximize in front of that. Open to interpretation, yes, but we'll, we'll unpick that over the coming months, hopefully. And then nature-based solutions. I think I've, I've given a little overview of what those are. And of course, there's a number of definitions out there, and we include that as well in the guidance. So let's put that back. Um, I really hope that this acts as a, a flag in the sand, that you know, this doesn't give all the answers, but I think we really need to narrow um, our focus and move towards the same direction on these twin threats to solve them. And I think nature-based solutions, prioritizing it, is the way that we can do that. Yes, there will be um, other means, sort of more hard engineering means we need to use, but let's try and prioritize nature-based solutions to find that win-win. And in fact, it's more like a win-win-win-win-win because you start looking at the health and well-being impacts as well, um, the impacts on social value, even on resource efficiency, and you see that this is the way we should be going. 
So I hope it, it, it plants that flag in the sand. Um, the great news is that we're already moving there as an industry. We're not starting from standing still. There is movement. This is an actor and resource map or the, the high level view of it that we've done for climate resilience, which again, you can find on the website and you can dig down to see all the initiatives that are happening and who's involved in them around this in our industry. And if you are involved in others that we haven't got, please let us know. This is a, a living platform. Please email us and um, well, my colleague Rob will update it, who's done a lot of this work and please you can speak to him as well today about the ambition. Um, there's some great examples out there, things like the Wild West End that Grosvenor and Crown Estate are running with the likes of Arup. Um, you know, there's five years of, of, of evidence gathering there about the impact and what works and, and maybe what doesn't from, from putting green infrastructure, nature-based solutions on existing urban environments. And we're involved in a very exciting project with Greater Manchester Combined Authority, four and a half million pound funding from the EU three-year project to come up with ways to increase um, the nature-based solutions within the urban area of Manchester by 10% by 2038, specifically for climate resilience. That's the first aim. And a big part of that is around the financing. Actually, a, a whole work stream coming up with what is the financial model that will bring investors to actually put their capital into green infrastructure, into nature-based solutions. Now, sometimes those might may be property owners, but actually looking at third-party investors as well. And I think that links really well with what we're seeing from finance, trying to chase kind of the impact investment, green bonds, and the green finance strategy. So just to, to wrap up, um, we've put that flag in the sand. There's an ambition there. We think we need to move towards it but we need to flesh it out a lot more. So what we want to do next is a roadmap. See what we've done here? So we need to create a roadmap to how we get to that 2030 ambition. And for that, we need again to work with all the experts. We're not the experts, we're really the facilitators. That's what we do. So we're looking for partners, both for funding, but also on delivery, um, and then much wider in the industry as well to help us through 2020, put that roadmap together. What are the interventions needed through policy, through industry, by who, by when, and start creating that guidance so that we achieve the ambition. So I hope in a quick run through, I've just set the scene on why today is so important, why all these solutions you're gonna find out about, we need to scale up and get far more of them out there, and why we all need to collaborate um, on this, find those solutions and, and find ways to actually um, finance them and, and put them into action. So thank you very much. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray. 